Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Luke 2, 1 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered alone with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So for the rest of Advent, we're going to be looking at chapter two of the book of Luke, which is pretty much the most famous Christmas chapter in all of the Bible. And especially next week and the week after, we're gonna be looking at the most famous verses and the most famous Christmas chapter in all the Bible. And these, of course, are the verses that Linus has read for the last 55 years in a Charlie Brown Christmas, the one about shepherds watching over their flocks at night and an angel of the Lord appears before them and the glory of the Lord shows around them and they're greatly afraid. Like, we're gonna look at that next week. And they're famous for a good reason. This chapter, these verses are famous for good reason because Christmas is about light shining into darkness. It's about light shining into darkness. You could say that 2020 has been a year where we have been reminded time and time again of the brokenness of our world, of the darkness of our world. Your plans have often been foiled. Your rhythms have often been disrupted. Um, the, the certainty of things has, has like shifted beneath our feet. Public health has been, un, been uncertain. The competency of leaders and of governments has been called into question. 2020 has kind of had this like this cloud hanging over it, where we've been constantly reminded of the brokenness of our world. In a a recent survey, over half of American adults reported having increased levels of anxiety and depression as a result of the events of 2020. This year, we've been particularly confronted with the brokenness of our world. But what's the phrase that we've kind of been hearing lately? Right? Like, what's the phrase that's kind of been thrown out there as you could say maybe like this glimmer of hope, right? Like, like even, even, as, the, even as things have been kind of disrupted, uh, the thing that you are hearing more and more is, but a vaccine is coming. And it's kind of thrown out there like, like the Savior is coming. Like things might go back to normal, right? But more than a vaccine coming into a pandemic, the message of Christmas is that God has come into our darkness. And so what we're gonna see this morning as we begin this most famous Christmas chapter is we're gonna see three things about Christmas. We're gonna see the reality of Christmas, we're gonna see the way of Christmas, and we're going to see the audience of Christmas. The reality of Christmas, the way of Christmas, and the audience of Christmas. So first, the reality of Christmas. 
it's, it's really interesting the way that Luke writes his gospel, that the way that Luke recounts the events of his gospel. He has a very specific way of recounting the things that he's writing about. And we see this right away in Luke chapter two, here in the first verse. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. It's so easy for us to kind of fly by this, but don't miss what Luke is doing here. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was born uh, Gaius Octavius, and his name was changed to Augustus by the Roman Senate in 27 BC. And he reigned as Caesar of Rome until 14 AD, until Tiberius uh, succeeded him in ruling. And we see Tiberius show up in Luke chapter three, and this is who is ruling for about 15 years when John the Baptist suddenly bursts onto the scene in Luke chapter three. Now, some people would say, and maybe you've heard this in like a religion class, maybe you've had a professor say this, or, or just friends in general, maybe you've heard something to the effect of, well, the New Testament uh, is really just written as like a legend. It's more like a myth. Like, especially the Gospels are nothing more than ancient myths, ancient legends. Like, like they're, they're written to portray, like, a general truth, but, but, they're, but they're written like myths. Like, like, the specifics of them can't be trusted. They're, they were intended to be more like fables. You can't really trust them as being historically accurate. Maybe, maybe you've heard someone say that. Well, the problem with that is that that kind of fiction hadn't been invented yet at the time of the writing of the Gospels. Like the reality is that anyone who says that, that these accounts, particularly in the Gospels, anyone that says that these accounts are just legends actually knows nothing about ancient fiction. And here's what I mean. You see, sometime around the 18th century, there was a kind of writing, a style of writing, a kind of fiction that developed in the West that we'll call realistic fiction. It was a kind of a fiction that reads like history because it's so incredibly detailed. Uh, I'll give you an example. So my daughter and I just finished reading the novel Frozen 2, The Forest of Shadows. I, didn't, I wasn't aware that Frozen was more than uh, just movies, like there's actually novels for it. And so we read The Forest of Shadows. Now, how long do you think that a Frozen kids novel would be? 150 pages, maybe, maybe 200 pages. Try 420. Now, I like to read, okay? It is a short list of 400-page books that I've read recently, okay? But why was Frozen 2, Forest of Shadows, 420 pages? It was because of the details. Like, a painful amount of details, like, like describing the bark on the trees and describing like the smell of the forest and describing like the chill of Elsa's breath as she runs from the Natmara and the, 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 the description of the light shining off of the torches of the Hunderfolk as they walk through the caves and they got it all. It's like all these things. I'm just like, this book could be a hundred pages if you took out all the details. Like it was full of details, detail after detail, painting a precise picture in the mind of the reader. But here's the thing, ancient myths weren't written like that. You see, what Luke is doing here in Luke chapter two 
is he's rooting the birth of Christ within the scope of world history. He places the birth of Christ within the time of world events to ensure that the reader, as we read Luke chapter two, that we would know that this isn't a fable, it isn't a myth, it isn't a cute story, but that we would know that this actually happened in an actual place, at an actual time. See, Luke wasn't flippant. And he wasn't dumb. We see in Colossians chapter four that the apostle Paul tells us that Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. And like any good physician who listens carefully, cares about details, takes notes, and wants to get the facts straight, Luke is doing his best to give an accurate account as to what was seen and described around the time of Jesus's birth. I mean, he says it in as much in Luke chapter one. If you, if you flip back a page in your Bible, you'll see he starts off the whole book saying, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the, world handed, of the word handed down them to us. It also seemed good to me since I've carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Here's the thing. If you're writing a fable in ancient times, you would never say that. You would never say, if your intention is to write a legend, I have taken the time to write an orderly account of all the things that have been reported and heard and seen amongst, like you would never say that. C.S. Lewis, who was a famous British author, and he also taught at uh, literature classes at Cambridge and Oxford, he says this about the gospel accounts. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of the gospel texts, there are only two possible views. Either they are reportage, like historical reporting, either they are reportage or some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. It gets a little punchy at the end there, right? But here's what he's saying. He's saying if the gospels were written as myths, then they were the first and last expression of this style of writing until the 18th century. There was no category. So why, why do I say all that? Why does, why does any of this matter? The reason this matters is because Christmas actually happened. The reality of Christmas the reality of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world, being born in an actual time, in an actual place, to actual people to come and actually do something. The reality of Christmas, because this actually happened, then who Jesus is and what he came to do can actually change your life. Jesus really came God's light in Christ really came and he can actually bring light into your darkness. He can actually bring hope into your hurting moments. 
This isn't some nice fable. This isn't some plastic lawn display that's surrounded by candy canes and snowmen. No, Jesus really came. And what he came to do and what he came to give can actually come to you as well. So we see the reality of Christmas. Number two, we see the way of Christmas. Now, now my guess is that for many of us, the way that we visualize the story of Christmas in our minds has largely been shaped by children's books, nativity scenes, and Christmas songs. Like when you think of Christmas, maybe the, the nostalgia of, of all the events surrounding the coming of Christ, like, like these little things, you know, largely rooted in our culture have, have, you know, often paint the picture for us when the reality is that the three wise men, I hate to spoil this for you, I'm sorry. The, the three wise men were not there when he was born. So you might wanna move the, your wise men across the living room, okay? Like they're still on their way, right? Like, but you see that all the time. Like, baby in a manger, three wise men. Nope, they weren't there. Like, that, that was Francis of Assisi that actually put that in there. Like, the reality is, is that Jesus probably wasn't born in a, in a barn or in a stable, and he certainly wasn't born in a clean environment, but he was probably actually born more in a cave, a, a hollow out in the rocks where shepherds would put their sheep within the crest of a cave. And it's certain that despite what we sing in a way in a manger, there's no reason for us to believe that Jesus never cried. Babies cry. Yes, he was perfect son of God. Doesn't mean he can't cry. But instead, instead of these like, like sentimentalized, nostalgic pictures that we get of the coming of Christ, instead what we see is an engaged couple with at least to them an unplanned pregnancy traveling about 90 miles across the Judean countryside only to reach Bethlehem where Joseph neither had the money or the social capital to secure for his expecting fiance an adequate place for her to give birth. And so despite his best efforts, they find themselves in a smelly, dark, gross sheep cave. And this is where the savior of the world is born. Now you might say, you might think like, wow, that is terrible timing. Like why? I mean, Mary didn't really have to go with him for the census, right? Like, but so this is terrible timing. What, one, why did she go? Two, why did she go at this time? If she was that close to labor, generally you kind of, you kind of halt your travel plans, right? But like all of these things, you go like, why? Why in the world did this happen? Terrible timing. Well, don't miss verse six. So much of this, we often fly by. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. The time came. You see, for us, at first glance, it would seem as though politics determined the time and the place of Jesus' birth. But make no mistake, the reason that Jesus was born, where he was born, when he was born, how he was born, was according to the purposes of the God who controls human history. This was the fulfillment of Micah chapter five, where it says that, that this great rescuer will come and be born in Bethlehem. You see, God's, God's timing is never late. And his timing is never accidental. We look at this and we go, wow, terrible timing. And God says, this is happening exactly as I have planned. 
There was no clean delivery room. There was no sanitized, filtered air. There were no sanitized pacifiers. There wasn't an abundance of diapers to be had. No, see, and, and even, like, even like in the lawn displays, Mary's robe is like pristine white. How does that happen? Have you ever seen a baby born? Like, especially if you're in a cave, right? Like this scene, this wasn't squeaky clean. Like the birth of Christ was absolutely brutal. You see, the best that they could do to bring this child into the world was for many of us, the worst we could imagine. The reality is that Jesus was born into poverty. Jesus was born into poverty. We don't, we don't only see this in, in the fact that, yeah, when they get to Bethlehem, Joseph doesn't have the financial means or the social capital to secure for them an adequate place to stay. But not only that, but a few verses later, if you fast forward to, to Luke 2, verse 24, when after Jesus is born and Mary and Joseph take him into the temple to dedicate him to the Lord, and they need to bring a sacrifice. And what is the sacrifice that they bring? Verse 24, they bring a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now to us, we go, great, they brought some birds. Don't miss this. According to Leviticus 18, this was the sacrifice for those who couldn't bring a lamb or a goat. This was the sacrifice of the poor. If you couldn't bring a lamb or a goat, you couldn't afford it, didn't have the money, didn't have the means, a couple small birds will suffice. Do you see the irony here? That Jesus Christ, creator of the world, the, the, the one that by whom and through whom and for whom all things have been created, he wasn't born rich. He was born poor. You see, this is the way of Christmas, that Jesus Christ was born into poverty. You ask, why in the world would he do this? Why in the world would he come in this way at this time? Why would he, why would he be born into this environment? I mean, he's God, isn't he? He, he, could, he could control the events of his arrival in any way that he wanted, and yet he chose very specifically to be born into poverty to poor Jewish peasants in a smelly, dirty sheep cave. Why would he do that? It was to show us the audience of Christmas. We have the reality of Christmas. We have the way of Christmas. And it was to show us the audience of Christmas. See, Jesus was born into poverty as a living, tangible example of exactly the kind of people he came for. This was no accident. See, it's interesting in Luke's account, uh, there's no mention of wise men. There's no mention of these Kings from the East, you could say. There's no mention of gold. There's no mention of frankincense. There's no mention of myrrh. There's no mention of precious, of precious jewels. There's no mention of prestigious people. But who are the first recipients of this news of Jesus' birth? It isn't nobles living in castles. It isn't, it isn't admirals living in fortresses. It's shepherds living in fields. The smelly, the grungy, the dirty, the unclean, 
the poor, the ones who don't sleep in cushy beds, but they sleep in dirty fields. See, this great audience that the angels came to bring the good news of Christmas, this is it. This is the news that no matter how poor, no matter how weak, no matter how wounded, no matter how rejected, that Jesus came and he came for all who would come to him, no cover charge. Like there is no, there is no bare minimum social capital. There is no bare minimum economic you know, status. There is no bare minimum amount of cleanliness that you need to have in order to be able to approach Jesus. Jesus came and he would come for all who would come to him. Maybe you say, my, my life is a little too chaotic. Surely God doesn't want that. But don't you see? Jesus was born into chaos for those living in chaos. You might say, like, like my, my, my life is a bit too messy. I need to get things cleaned up a little bit. Like, like before, I, before I come to Jesus, I just, I just kind of got to get a few things straight. My life's a bit of a mess right now. But don't you see, Jesus was born into the mess to come to those, to receive those who are messy, who are poor, who are rejected. He was born into the darkness so that the light of his salvation would come to those who are living in darkness. Or maybe you say, my life isn't that messy. My life isn't that chaotic. Yeah, 2020 has been crazy, but for, for the most part, I've kind of like gone, like gotten through unscathed. Like, I mean, I could always use more money, but I'm doing fine. Like I'm doing fine financially. My health is relatively intact. I'm doing all right. Things are going well. And so when you hear that Jesus was born into poverty to save the poor, you go, well, I'm not poor, so Jesus must not be for me. Don't be deceived. Don't be Deceived. No matter how wealthy, no matter how healthy, no matter how strong, no matter how intelligent, no, no matter how capable you are or think you are, the reality is that apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we are all spiritually bankrupt. We are all spiritually poor. We are all spiritually messy. We are all weak. We are all foolish. We are all utterly dependent on God's light to shine into our broken and impoverished souls. Yeah, you may look great on the outside. Your house may be pristine. Your clothes may be, may be perfect. Like your job may be going, your life may on the outside be going well. But apart from Christ, as you stand before God, you are totally bankrupt. Don't let your worldly riches deceive you into thinking that you are rich with God apart from Christ. Jesus was born into poverty to rescue those in spiritual poverty. Jesus was born in the dark to rescue those in spiritual darkness. He didn't come as a king to live in a castle only to be accessible to the privileged and the powerful. He didn't come as a warrior to live in a fortress only to be accessible to the strong and to the mighty. No, he came in weakness as a baby. He came in poverty. He was born to Jewish peasants. See, the thing about mangers is that anyone can come to them. You go to a castle, you're not, you're not just walking in. And even if you do, you're certainly not just walking straight up to the king. You go to a fortress, you better have some ID. But you come to a manger Anyone can come to that. 
Anyone can walk up to that. And he came in this way so that from the very first seconds of his earthly life, we would see that he came not for the strong, but he came for the weak. That he came not for the spiritually wealthy, but he came for the spiritually bankrupt. This is, this is precisely what Paul means in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he says, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Though he was rich, he became poor so that by his poverty, he might make those who are poor in spirit become rich toward God. Jesus, the light of the world, has pierced the darkness. If you have not yet received Christ this morning, admit your spiritual poverty and receive Christ. Receive this free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And if you have already received Christ in faith this morning, the message this Christmas is not an appeal for you to do something but it's an announcement of what God has already done in Christ. And so our response as believers is simply to behold the coming of Christ who came in poverty to save us who were impoverished. And we respond in joyful worship this season. You see, the message of Christmas is that Jesus came and he came for people like you and like me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for seeing us in our darkness, for seeing us in our lowly estate, in our inability to find our way back to you, even if we wanted to. Oh, Lord, we know that apart from your grace, we are enemies of you. And so we thank you for breaking into the darkness. Jesus, for coming as a baby in weakness, for us who were weak, for coming in poverty, for us who were bankrupt, for coming in a lowly way, for us who are lowly before you, that we might be given the riches of your grace. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray for anyone in this room, anyone hearing the sound of my voice who has not yet received this great Christmas gift of Jesus Christ, Lord, but today they turn in faith to cease from their striving, to set aside their confidence in their worldly goods and abilities and to turn to you to receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.